Hi, welcome to the Brooks Online Gathering. My name is Muchi Cable. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Honored, humbled, excited uh, that we could connect together in this way, um, in this moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be uh, for the remainder of our time. If you don't have a Bible, that's cool. Uh, the text will be on the screen and you can just follow along uh, with us as we work through this text together. We have been in the middle of this series that we're actually closing uh, today, Words I Never Said. And it's really been and the crystallization of concepts, ideas that have flowed out of my devotional time with the Lord, but have really, again, they started to become more crystallized in the last few months. But what we did, we just said we want to take the, these last few weeks and we kind of want to hone in um, on an idea, a, a theme, a topic, justice. And what does it look like for justice to have its rightful place in our hearts, in our lives, and in the world around us to, to cause us to pursue restorative justice for the glory of God and the good of all people. And what we want to say even now is there are no silver bullet sermons to anything, period. And, 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 and we know that that hasn't taken place. Rather, this has been really a springboard into greater conversation. And hopefully it's been a spirit-filled, spirit-led stirring um, of our hearts to think differently, think more excellently, and then engage appropriately as a result of it. But again, springboard into greater conversations, and we actually want to have a conversation next week. So we're going to have a Q&A. So uh, text in your questions, uh, email them, send them uh, to us through our social media platform so that we could engage with them together around this issue of justice, but not just the issue or idea of justice, but also issues and ideas regarding emotional health and spirituality in the midst of this pandemic space. So send those questions in and we'll wrestle with them together next week. But for this week, justice. And specifically, we're looking at ideas or ideological frameworks that both hinder the pursuits of justice, but they also provide opportunities where justice needs to be felt all the more. You know, I know. Ideas are powerful. Ideas are powerful. They're pervasive. And so, so even uh, Christopher Nolan in his movie Inception, top five movies of all time. I mean, Christopher Nolan in his unending prime. But Inception is this movie around thought crimes and thought thieves, and they would implant ideas in people's subconscious knowing that it would eventually shape and govern the rest of their lives. We know that. We know ideas are pervasive and powerful. We also know not all ideas are created equal. So some ideas we still have that allow us to do crazy things like drink ginger ale when we have stomach aches and take naps when our head is falling off. What? Just take a nap, sleep it off. And it's like we laugh and joke because it's not really that harmful. But there's other ideas that will send you to hell. There's supremacist ideologies that create these schisms in our thinking and in our lives that allow us to operate believing that we could love God without our heart, mind, soul, and strength vertically, yet hate, harbor hatred in our heart for our brothers and sisters because they're different than us horizontally. That's a destructive idea. So 
All ideas are powerful, not all ideas are created equal. But as ideas and concepts collide, they create what is called an ideology or ideological framework. And we have several of them. And we move fluidly between all of those ideological frameworks with them carrying weight at different times. Now what the scriptures invite us to do is to step into a space of humility, thoughtfulness and courage regarding ideas and ideological frameworks that we may be living in light of. In fact, that is 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, while defending his ministry in rich, profound ways, is actually giving us a method for what it looks like to engage with ideas that are harmful and destructive. It's powerful. The conclusion he leads us to is we have a responsibility to take every thought captive and bring it to obedience to Christ. More on that later. But the pathway he leads us through to get to this conclusion is very rich, where he starts off by establishing the environment regarding the world that we live in, and then there's some layered richnesses to, to like the, the method that he actually is employing. And so that's actually going to be the flow of our time. We're going to look at some of the dynamics to the environment that Paul is keying us into, and then some of the layered richness within his method and the implications thereof. And then we're going to apply it to a few ideas, ideological frameworks that I think are threats to us in our time. And then we'll close with prayer. So 2 Corinthians, uh, read with me and then we'll get to work. Verse 1 uh, starts like this. I, uh, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold, bold toward you when I'm away, I beg you, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, idea raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Man, there is a lot here, but we are invited to bear witness to the conversation Paul is having with the Corinthian people. And in this, we just, we just see his heart in full view, like this humble, tender, meek, courageous, shepherding heart to lead people into an ever-increasing life and experience with God. 
and to deal with the things that are harming them. We just see that Paul wants something for them, not just something from them. And that matters. And the Corinthian uh, people, they had a lot of issues. They had a lot of issues. But prevalent among them were not just ideas that were powerful and problematic. It was also people who were peddling said problematic and powerful ideas. And in their peddling of these ideas, they tried to root these ideas as if they were rooted in God and his wisdom. And they worked. And what they did while trying to peddle these problematic, powerful ideas was attack God and attack God's man, Paul. And so they would even say stuff to Paul like, Paul, clearly you can't be sent of God because you're experiencing suffering. What a trash idea that to say to experience some level of suffering is to be secluded from the presence of God. And I love the way Paul addresses that in particular by actually boasting in his suffering, showing that for the Christian, suffering isn't a mark of shame. It's a badge of honor. Suffering invites us into that sacred space where we meet the God who does it too and provides comfort, especially when we suffer for righteousness sake. We suffer because we're persecuted. We're confronted by and and comforted with blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake for theirs is the kingdom. And Paul brings that out, which, which is part of what he's doing. He is not sidestepping that which is harmful or difficult. He is stepping into it because there's something better that he's after, an excellent life with Jesus. And as he's stepping into this space, getting ready to dismantle said ideas and ideologies, he starts to say things that establish the variety of dynamics of the world that we live in. Now we see this because of this interplay, this interaction between this word flesh, this interplay and this interaction with this word the flesh. Now, in, in Paul's writings, the flesh can mean several different things. Usually it means that it's this sinful part of humanity that resists the goodness and grace of God. It goes its own way. It rejects life on God's terms and chooses to do what it wants, the flesh. This sinful, wicked part of humanity, unwilling to submit to God's glorious, good, beautiful rule and reign, the flesh. Other times, it doesn't mean this sinful, wicked part of humanity. It just means the natural world that we live in, the material world, the world that we could touch, taste, feel, see, hear, even smell, a material world. Now, both of those are in view here, but I think the greater emphasis is actually the material world. Now, the reason I would say that is because the other aspects of the way flesh is being interacted with, he says, yet though we don't walk, like we walk in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. In fact, the weapons of our warfare are divine. And so there's this spiritual, immaterial aspect that he's bringing out. This immaterial world that's not interacted in the same way. So you don't touch, taste, see, feel, hear, or smell the same way as a material world, but he also sits on top of it, the spiritual world, cosmic forces at work. Now, we see that not just with divine power, this cosmic power 
employed to do something that is necessary, the grace of God at work. We also see this with the end, verse 5, where he, he brings out taking every thought captive. So that, that word the thought in the Greek is used all throughout Paul's writings. But in 2 Corinthians in particular, he uses it in chapter 2 and he translates or is translated for us schemes or designs associated with Satan. So demonic ideas, schemes, and designs and plans. Now it keeps going. That, that word shows up again in, in chapter 3 and it's Satan's demonic schemes and designs to keep minds darkened. Then it goes into chapter four, not to just keep minds darkened, but hearts blind and bound to the beauty of God. So they don't see God rightly or see the world as we should. And so what's in view is this multi-sensory, multi-dimensional world with this emphasis on the spiritual aspects of it. Now that isn't to spook us. But it is to sober us up that there's a whole nother world at play, the world beneath the world, if you will, that we are meant to see. We got to see with God's eyes. Now, Paul constantly talks like this and invites us to see with God's eyes, because when we see with God's eyes, we don't just see things as they are. We see things as they truly can be and should be. Now, if you apply that ethic to people, think about this. This spiritual world is one that everybody exists in and there's demonic schemes directed towards people. And so in a very real practical sense, people are victims of spiritual forces at work and other people's, not just their own, sin. And when we see with God's eyes and we see people not just as violators or perpetrators, but as victims, that moves us to be a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more empathetic and compassionate towards people because they're in pain, too. They're a product of a war. Now, that doesn't remove responsibility. <laughs> no, like people are still accountable to their foolish acts, but it does keep us from being consumed by a calloused heart that just sees people as enemies and not victims of a larger enemy, Satan and his schemes. Now, if you apply that to ideas, God's sight, seeing with God's eyes, then it leads us to say that, man, you know what? There's not just some ideas that are harmful that you know you could kind of ignore and be okay with. Ah, it doesn't really deal with me, but. They're ideas that are demonic. And we need to feel the force of that because again, there's some things that you could just ignore. So again, last week I mentioned uh, these stray cats in my neighborhood uh, who I believe ate Shadow Weaver, my son's hamster. And that's why I think they keep coming back because they're like, we struck gold once, maybe it'll happen again. It will not, uh, but they keep coming. Now, they antagonize my dog Gambit. They annoy me with the little treats that they leave scattered throughout my yard, but I can get by without really having to deal with them. And there's some ideas, again, that we could, we could do with that, but, but what we're supposed to see here is that some ideas are inherently demonic in that they seek to, what the text says, elevate themselves over the knowledge of God 
and bring bondage as a result of it in that they're inherently attached to Satan and his schemes to undo, usurp the work of God in humanity and history. And we can't just bat our eyes at them. We have to deal with them. And thus we have this layered rich method to take thoughts captive and bring them to obedience of Christ. But the richness and the layers are seen in the implications. And so you look at the act of taking thoughts captive and then the means of taking thoughts captive. So the act taking thoughts captive is to simply allow Jesus and his work to have decisive authority in evaluating ideas. To allow Jesus and his work to have decisive authority in evaluating ideas. That's why it's being brought to obedience. It's brought to him and saying, God, you weigh in on said idea, concept, ideological framework. But implied to that is actually having an understanding of Jesus and his work. Now, here's why this is rich. Understanding throughout the scriptures is not merely informational prowess. It is bathed in relationship and maturity. And so even the writer of Hebrews articulates this. He talks about, yo, that there's this idea of solid food and meat for the mature, not because they're informational experts. They went at Bible trivia. It's because they have relational integrity. They are operating with intimacy and they're able to apply that relationship in real time in a variety of situations. And so implied in taking thoughts captive to Christ is understanding Jesus and his work intimately, its relationship. Now that fits well with the weapons, with the means, weapons of warfare. He says our weapons of warfare, they're not according to the flesh, but they're divine and powerful. So this keys us in to how Paul uses this weapon and warfare and spiritual battle language. So we see it in Colossians, we see it in Ephesians, we see it in Thessalonians. And what we are meant to walk away with is that the weapons of our warfare are the word of God and prayer. It's the spirit of God bringing the word of God to life and moving us to pray consistently, fervently, that means with energy, and poignantly around certain issues that we may find ourselves in. This is why we say that prayer is the first protest. It's to seek God to act on our behalf. Now, implied to that weapon though, it's, again, it's this, not just seeing the word of God and prayer as tools, but it's allowing those things to shape our hearts and minds. And so implied is this idea of saturation. It's to be consumed and saturated by the compelling ideas that the word of God offers. So we take this with the other things that Paul talks about. So 
in Philippians, he said, whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, whatever is noble, praiseworthy, good, you meditate on that. You think on that. You allow your heart and your mind to be captured by that. This is Colossians chapter 3, that, that we are to set our hearts and our minds on Christ who is above to be fixed on him, to be saturated by ideas that he offers. The scriptures are filled with compelling ideas regarding God himself, us personally, humanity generally, and the world around us, and history. So so think about the ideas God offers regarding himself. He introduces himself regularly throughout the scriptures as a defender of the weak. So those who are the most vulnerable among us, God says, I step in as voice, visibility, and power for them. Defender of the weak. But not just defender of the weak, a father to the fatherless. That those who feel abandoned, and not just feel, have actually been abandoned and left to fend for themselves as orphans in this world, this multi-dimensional, multi-sensory world, I step in on their behalf and I father them. I provide profound mercy and direction and guidance and presence for them. I'm a father to the fatherless. I have tender mercy to those who are hurting. I'm near to the brokenhearted. The beginning of 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in his Grace and mercy and in our time of need. I'm I'm steadfast in all my faithfulness. That means history won't undo who I am. I move in step and in sync with the certainty of my character. Unmatched in all of his power. That no one could stop God's march towards his preferred future of history, his vision for all of life, you're not going to stop that. And I'm unwavering in my love that you can't stop me from loving you. You could give me a thousand reasons and I'll find a thousand one and then some. Scratch that. All I need is one, my determination to do it. Such a compelling idea. Think about the compelling ideas offered to humanity, to us personally. That the announcement of creation that we get in the scriptures comes with this beautiful poetic phrase, let us make man in our likeness and after our image. That means, quite frankly, there are no accidental humans, only people bursting with dignity and design. Think about about the, the compelling idea regarding all life and history, that when history is history, it's in the rear view of eternity, what's in front of the people who have believed in Jesus and have like given their lives over to his love is the simple phrase, all things new. That, that God is marching all of history progressively towards this newness. Broken things mended, Wrong things righted. 
The scriptures are filled with compelling ideas and God invites us to think about them critically. That means to tease them out to their implications, to trace where they come from and to linger in them, to linger in these compelling ideas until critical thinking with God's mind becomes as natural as breathing. And we're able to see dangerous, destructive, demonic ideas for what they are. But there's more layers here. There's more, there's more layers here. Because implied to taking thoughts captive is not just the actual thoughts themselves. It's the people that champion them and the factors that contribute to the foolishness flourishing. We know this to be the case because verse 6, he talks about bringing people to obedience as well. Full obedience. Now, you know, I know that there are people who contribute to foolishness flourishing and there's factors that contribute to foolishness flourishing. Some of the people are fake experts. They talk as if they know what they're talking about when it's clear they don't. And some of the factors are intellectual laziness, snobbery, we're arrogant and we're lazy so we don't investigate ideas and we just allow them to keep going, run rampant. Woundedness. And so we want certain things to be true because it'll bring some sense of meaning to pain. All of these are factors. And so we bring those to submission by bringing the weight of who Jesus is and what he is doing, how he is working to those people and to those things. And to that end, let me say a couple of things and then we're going to move on to applying this specifically to a few ideas. The first is this. Man, I know in such a time as this, we're all looking for trusted sources. I would encourage us to do the humble and hard work of research. That we wouldn't just give ourselves over to voices because they're more visible or because they sound correct. And to that, I'll say a second thing. Apparently, via my social feed, in the last six and a half months, people have now become experts in social theory. I'm like, okay, cool beats. They've become experts in public health administration. They become experts in medicine. And I say that tongue in cheek, but I'm serious. We are speaking in ways that is very problematic, where we are speaking as if we possess a level of expertise when we really only have cursory engagement with certain ideas. Don't pretend to be an expert. Lies are at stake, man. Now, I say that to, not to say, yo, step away from conversations. No, no, step in. Do what Paul did. We step in thoughtfully, courageously, and humbly bringing the truth of who Jesus is and how he's working to bear. But I wanted to say that again. Thoughtfully and humbly. We step in with an accurate voice. Not just to be heard, but to move people towards life. Let's look at how this is applied to a few ideas that are destructive, dangerous, and demonic. Now, they're ideas that are on the rise in our moment in time, but they existed before our moment in time, and they will exist after our moment in time. They'll exist after our moment in time because they're agile 
and they're able to disguise themselves so they adapt situationally, circumstantially, and chronologically. But then they're also attached to Satan, the demonic. He uses them to undermine the work of God in humanity and history. And though they will exist out, out after us, we have a social, spiritual, and moral responsibility to move the ball forward in certain conversation in certain places so that those who come after us can run farther, faster, and more faithful and excellent ways, bringing people to a glorious life with Jesus. So let me geek out a little bit <laughs> and deal with the first idea, this ideological framework called Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is an ideological framework with really two aspects, and this bad boy is agile and adaptable. It's like roaches, man. You know, roaches that survive like nuclear apocalypses. This is Gnosticism, it just, it's here. But there's two aspects of it. The first aspect is this appeal to a special or secret knowledge implying special or secret access to God. And if you want access, then you have to go through this regiment or this ritual because I have the special and secret access. Think I know something you don't know on steroids and then some, except for it's demonic and it sends people to hell. Now, there's another aspect of this that's not just this appeal to secret or special knowledge implying secret or special access, ide I essentially it's ideological imperialism, it's intellectual arrogance. So there's not just that aspect, there's this other aspect which is this rigid demarcation, this divide between quote unquote the natural and the spiritual. A divide is created between what is deemed as natural or quote unquote secular and that which is deemed as spiritual or quote unquote sacred. And so Gnosticism is an ideological framework that creates this functional dualism and intellectual imperialism. Now, all frameworks, all ideas exist on a spectrum. And so on one aspect of the spectrum of Gnosticism, you literally have this damnable heresy that people bought into that said Jesus didn't come in bodily form. That what the disciples saw as they were interacting with Jesus was this human figure with this spirit or ghost, this apparition hovering over it. Because you can't touch that which is matter. It's too holy for God. He can't be around there. He's, he's too holy for it. Excuse me. So that's one side of the spectrum. But there's another aspect of this thing that we felt historically in America. And we even feel now. Historically, it showed up with certain Christian groups that thought they could own slaves, they could own people, other humans, and their justification was, at least we're going to save their soul. Now that sounds, oh man, that's like backwoods Neanderthal thinking until you look at the here and now and some of the ways that Christians even talk about evangelism. How we create this unhealthy separation that says, you know, just as long as we can get you to heaven, who cares about what happens in the here and now? That's demonic from the pit of hell. Gnosticism, essentially, it leaves God out of certain areas of life 
and only brings him in when it's convenient or on its terms. It's a affront to the work of justice because all areas are fair game for God to bring a restorative ethic to as he moves people and history towards newness. Now, there's another idea similar to Gnosticism. It's agile. It's existed before us, but man, is it here now? Rugged individualism. So rugged individualism is this ideological framework where you center yourself in relation to all things. And so you become the chief determiner and standard bearer for how things are meant to function. You essentially become God. Now, obviously, that exists on a spectrum as well. And so on one side of the spectrum, you have the outright rejection of God. Man, I'm not going to, I don't really need you. I will, by my own strength and ingenuity, my own effort, create the life I want for myself. If you want to help me out, cool, but I really don't need you. So that's one side of the spectrum. But because this rugged individualism centers oneself in relation to everything, especially people, what I also have seen is this unhealthy emphasis on personal responsibility. Now, when you're emphasizing personal responsibility for self in an unhealthy way, it leads you to self-righteousness. The assumption that you meet your own standards or the standards of God, it's foolish. But when you project that unhealthy emphasis on people, you dismiss the reality of social ethics and environments, that we are all products of cultures and communities and institutions and systems shaping us. And so when you look at certain situations with certain people who are hurting and harmful, the vulnerable among us, what you just say is, well, they need to take more responsibility. They need to do better. And if they did better, they'd get out of the situation. And then when it, becomes, when it comes time to issues of oppression, specifically along, along color lines, you're like, oh, that doesn't exist. Look at LeBron James. Look at Oprah. You'd be like that. The problem is, again, let's, from the Christians, we should see with different eyes. Because you look at Daniel, look at Joseph, and yeah, they thrived, but they were thriving in an oppressive regime, and there was other factors at work in their lives. Rugged individualism removes the reality of grace from actions and interactions with people. Demonic. Here's the last idea. I alluded to it in the beginning and a little bit even now with that LeBron Oprah illustration, but it's racism. Racism is an ideological framework rooted in racial or ethnic prejudice that operates individually and institutionally. Now, because individuals and institutions shape society, if we look with any degree of integrity, we know that we live in a racialized society where race comes into play to decisions, policies, and the ecosystem of the world that we live in. Now that's not new to us, that's always been. Daniel, again, Joseph, it's all throughout the scriptures. But there's an aspect of racism that 
is very dangerous and oppressive and it's tied to our history. The vestiges of it are everywhere now in America and now across the globe. It's the aspect of racism known as white supremacy. That it is this supremacist ideology that essentially centers a white Anglo racialized identity above all others. And within that centering, it leads to suppression and subjugation of people in a different racial ethnic group. Now, its roots are demonic. It's satanic, but its roots also exist historically through European colonialism. That in 1914, 80% of the globe had experienced some version of European colonialism. Guys, eight out of 10, eight out of 10. And I say that to say part of the, the tension with supremacist ideologies and a refusal to acknowledge them for what they are is we treat them as if they're like ancient, like Fred Flintstone. Dude, my, my dad, my dad, um, and we had this conversation a few years ago, me and my dad, he fought in the Nigerian Civil War, the Biafran War, he was a freedom fighter. And the Biafran Civil War was on the heels of the destabilization of Nigeria when the British Empire finally decided to decolonize the region. Guys, that was 1960. <laughs> Come on, this isn't Flintstone. This is our fathers. This is our grandfathers. This is our uncles. This is some of you. It's everywhere. But again, it exists on a spectrum. So it's easy to identify, oh yeah, the heinous, obvious acts, chattel slavery, colonialization, redlining, de jour segregation, Jim Crow laws, the criminalization of communities of colors, mass incarceration. Like, it's easy to talk about those, but there's the subtle aspects that become more pervasive. It's the subtle ways in which we exclude other cultural narratives as viable or valuable to this larger vein of humanity. And in Christianity, we do it often, where Eurocentrism implicitly becomes the standard of right and the standard we conform to. It's the reason why when we think of Christianity and we want to put a face to it, we think middle-aged white men instead of brown skin lady, which is more accurate of this global family called Christian. Now, this demonic destructive ideology, like all the others, has something that unites them, which is at its core is this demonic attempt to assault the image of God in humans and undo the work of God for their good and his ultimate glory. 
So you get to Gnosticism and the hope of Christianity is that we have a bodily resurrection that in the all things being made new scheme, we're part of that. This is why Jesus, when he rose from the dead, it's very profound that he ate fish, that he said, Thomas, touch the holes in my hand. Look at me. I'm not a ghost. I'm, a, I'm, I'm physical, but I'm different, glorified body. It's coming for you because you believe in me. This is why the, the authors of 1 John, they, he talked about that which we touched, tasted, handled, we seen, we interacted with. The word had became flesh and now we present to you so that you can have life. To undo that with Gnosticism, to corner God into Sundays because that's spiritual and to leave him out of other conversations because that's secular. It undermines the work of God and it assaults humans. Same with rugged individualism. Inherent in the Imago Dei, the image of God is community. Let us make man in our likeness and our image. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the image of God is plural. We as people exist best when we're in community. In fact, we become more whole as we become known in community. And then racism, this emphasis on white supremacy. It undermines the richness and the beauty that the gospel doesn't just bring different people into the same room, but into the same family. That ethnicity isn't something that you do away with. That ethnicity isn't something that should create hierarchies, but ethnicity is something that should cause all of us to exist with humility, bowing our knees, learning from each other and saying, how do you show me something beautiful about Jesus? So that when the end of age comes and we're all singing together, we're standing with united hearts that spent the here and now learning together. If we don't see them for what they are, we won't be able to take them captive to a more excellent idea. The ideas Jesus embodies and gives us and invites us to linger with and to be shaped by. All of that leads us to pray. One of our weapons necessary because you know and I know that intensity allows us to be more engaged, but we need to be thoughtful and we need this ethic, not while things are intense and in front of us, but in everyday normative spaces, because it's in those everyday normative spaces that our ideological frameworks actually show up. So let us pray that God would put a posture of humility in our hearts and give us the practice of thought capturing so that we could engage the world well. Pray with me. Only you could do it, God. Only you could provide the power necessary to engage with things that are destructive and harmful and want to destroy the life that you would have for people. Only you, through your powerful spirit, makes it possible. Thank you, 
God, that you have chosen not to function in some Gnostic way, but you have incarnated yourself. You've, you've come down among us to show us. And then you use us to move things forward. Would we not resist ideas that you offer but would we relish the opportunity to rest in them in the here and now as we march towards the future? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.